You know, I shot the ball. I, I let it go. I didn't even think about tiptoeing the line or anything like that. I just turned around and let it fly. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Thrilled about the guests I'm about to bring on. National Player of the Year in college basketball. Basically, Consensus Player of the Year in 1989. Two-time Pac-10, now Pac-12 Player of the Year. Two-time NBA All-Star. NBA Champion with the Spurs. His numbers retired by the University of Arizona and by the Spurs. From all accounts, everyone I speak to, just one of the kindest men in sports as well. And uh, he's now a member of uh, the broadcast team covering the Spurs. Sean Elliott, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Appreciate it, Adam. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk to you, Sean. As I love to start out with, with many of the guests on here, what is your earliest basketball memory? Oh, my earliest basketball memory would have to be uh, from the Boys and Girls Club, uh, I think, you know, I, I was uh, playing on one of their teams, and I thought it was pretty good, and there was a kid, uh, I'll never forget his name, was Charles Flanagan, and, and he was just running all through our team, and he really knew how to play. And at that point, I realized that I was pretty sorry. I wasn't very good. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, when I first picked up the game, when I first started playing, I, was, I wasn't good at all. I had no clue uh, what I was doing out there. So tell me about the development of your skills then at that, that early age. Oh, you know what happened uh, to me, Adam, is I was uh, I started playing in the sixth grade uh, before school. So I would get to school early. I'd get on the on the, the little playground there, and I'd start to play. And uh, I saw one of my friends who had played basketball. He had actually come from Atlanta. And, you know, Tucson was kind of slow and sleepy uh, back then, and you know, the only way to learn basketball is to, to kind of learn it from other people or, or see a kid who's better than you and, and, and try to copy their moves. And uh, one of my friends, his name was Alvin, he came back from Atlanta, and, and he had all these fancy moves that none of us had ever seen before. He's dribbling the ball around his legs and stuff like that between his legs. And uh, I saw that, and I was like, wow, you know, I want to be able to do all that. So I started practicing in my front driveway all the time with the basketball since I didn't have a hoop at home. I would just take the ball out into the street, and I would practice dribbling between my legs up and down, up and down the street. Uh, I'd work on, you know, trying to dribble around my legs, standing in one spot. And from there, I kind of got a good sense of ball handling, and, and that kind of helped me out big time when I was a kid. Who did you model your game after at the time? Well, then, you know, as I started to get better and better, uh, when I got to high school, there was a, a guy in Tucson, his name was Harold Fields, and he played at Choya High. He was, a, he was a, a year ahead of me, and his nickname was The Fuzz because that was like <laughs> the, the nickname for, you know, the cops back then. So his nickname was The Fuzz, and he was just uh, 
he was an incredible player at the time. And uh, when I saw him play, uh, you know, I just figured that you know he was even though he was a guard that there, you know, why shouldn't I have guard skills like that and be able to do the things that he was able to do with the basketball? So, you know, I tried to model a lot of my game after after Harold Fields when I was in high school. Uh, so the fuzz could play. The fuzz could play. Oh, the fuzz, nice. the fuzz could play. I mean, he. He just, you know, Tucson wasn't the the scouting mecca of the world. You know, guys were guys weren't coming to Tucson uh, to watch kids play basketball. When when scouts came to Tucson, it was to gas up their tank on the way to Phoenix or L.A. <laughs> right, right. And, so, and so, you know, when I even uh, Adam, when I went to Five Star uh, basketball camp, uh, entering my junior season, I, you know, I had seen all these big name guards. Uh, around the country, I'd seen their names on the Street and Smith All American yearbooks and all this stuff, and still I didn't see anybody that impressed me more than Harold Fields. Wow! So I knew he could play. Wow. Where did he end up? He ended up going to junior college. I think he went to Western Arizona, and you know he played there for a little while. And and uh, you know I think from there he's he's on doing other things. He obviously didn't continue to play basketball, but boy, he sure was a talent in high school. You mentioned Troy High School in Tucson, obviously. Uh, your two-time All-State selection there set the state record for points in a season, averaged 31 a game. You talk about the scouts and the idea that Tucson wasn't a place where scouts were rushing to as some hotbed of you know high school talent. So as you were right. coming up, when did the notoriety start to come for your game? The national notoriety came after I got back from uh, my summer going into my senior year, uh, I'd gone to the five-star basketball camp and I made the all-star team there, uh, both weeks. And that's when I started uh, getting a lot of letters, a lot of notoriety, but, you know, by that time I had already committed to Arizona. Uh, and, and so I wasn't really interested in going anywhere else. Although I started to receive uh, a lot of letters in the mail pretty much, um, every day. And, and so, you know, I, I just at that point again, I had already made up my mind, and and I really didn't look to go anywhere else. But at that camp, I was it was run by Howard Garfinkel, and so mm-hmm. uh, when I made the McDonald's team that year, it was because of Howard Garfinkel, and because he had seen me play, and and uh, you know thought that I was one of the better players out there. How much did uh, other coaches try to sway you from your Arizona commitment once they saw you at Five Star? Uh, you know, I, I got a few calls where, where some coaches would, you know, wanted me to kind of reconsider and maybe take a second look at their schools. But the only uh, schools that I would even consider at that time were UTEP because uh, they were on me early. Uh, UTEP called me probably when I was somewhere in my uh, sophomore year, uh, junior year, somewhere in there uh, when I was going to be a junior in high school. And the other one, surprisingly, was Arizona State. They called me around the time Arizona was calling me and they, you know, they were kind of halfway uh, coming after me, but I don't think they had really seen me play either. You know, those were the only other places that I would have even considered because again, they were on top of me early. Sean, you, you can't say that out loud. You're going to really frustrate a lot of Sun Devil <laughs> fans. <out there. laughs> it was too bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure you don't feel, feel much for those guys. So when did the, just for clarification, when did the knee injury occur? Uh, knee injury occurred actually uh, the first day after my freshman season had ended. My freshman basketball season ended on a Friday, and uh, t- typical of me, you know, I was playing all kinds of sports back then. Saturday morning uh, was soccer, 
uh, the next Saturday. I mean, that, that very same Saturday. So I was out in the soccer field uh, Saturday morning uh, playing my first game of the season. And uh, I was bringing the ball up. I was playing center forward, and I was bringing the ball up, and the kid came in to me with a slide tackle. And, uh, you know, I tore my left anterior cruciate. And that was, uh, you know, still to this day, I can't remember a more painful moment. It was excruciating. Mm-hmm. I think every bad word I ever learned came out of my mouth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I tried to get up and play on it. But, you know, my leg, my knee basically swelled up to the size of a grapefruit. It was huge. And so I wasn't able to play. And, uh, you know, I went to, to see the doctor on, a, on a, the, the following uh, Monday or Tuesday somewhere in there, and the very next week I had surgery. And obviously ended up pretty lucky because your knee made this a miraculous recovery over time. Now, I know when you got to Arizona, as you described, so you come there, you always kept the knee brace on, uh, even though yeah. I, I've been told that you didn't even need it. So what was the reason for the wearing of the knee brace after you didn't need it any longer? Well, you know, long story, actually, but I'll, I'll try to get through it. <laughs> You know, back in the day, Adam, you know, the, the knee surgeries aren't like they are now. And and so when I woke up, you know, I, I had what I call Frankenstein surgery. You know, I've got a big scar on the inside of my left knee, and then I have a big scar on the outside of my right knee. Nowadays, they do scopes and they do all these advanced procedures. But back then, they pretty much just sutured or stapled your ACL back onto the bone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they pretty much opened your whole kneecap, and then they tighten up my IT band. So they do all these kind of different things. Uh, but they, when I woke up from surgery, I had, I was in a full length cast from the tip of my toe all the way up to my hip. And I couldn't move wow. my leg. I couldn't move my left leg for two months. It stayed in that position. And so when I got my, my leg out of a cast on a Monday, the doctor told me that he wanted me on crutches for two months before I started any physical activity uh, just to kind of get the mobility back. That was on a Monday when he took my cast off. Saturday, I was at the YMCA playing basketball. And, and, and so I was one of these, yeah, I was one of these stubborn kids. You know, he told me at first when, when I first tore my ACL that I was never going to play basketball again. And so, but I was, you know, I was 13 years old. So, you, you know, you can't tell that to a 13-year-old kid. We don't understand that. And so, uh, you know, I'm playing at the Y on, on Saturday. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, kind of running on it and still uh, playing, even though it's not all the way strong. And even then, when I'd go back to the doctor's office, like two weeks, three weeks later, I had to go in on crutches uh, because I didn't want him to know that I, that I, you know, wasn't using my crutches, that I was actually playing and walking on it all the time. But it caught up to me. I was playing at the Y one day, probably two months uh, after my surgery, and I twisted it again really badly. It swelled up, uh, filled up with blood. I had to go get it drained. Uh, the doctor wasn't too thrilled, actually, because obviously I'm not supposed to be on it. Uh, he put it in a brace, uh, you know, told me to stay off of it again, and about a month and a half or two months later, I was playing in an open gym at Choya, uh, after school and uh, made a move and twisted it again. And when I went in, I mean, the doctor obviously wasn't pleased because, uh, you know, he had to stick a needle in my knee and drain all the blood out of it again. Uh, and at that point, my mom was kind of frustrated too because, 
here's a doctor saying, well, you're not going to play again, but, you know, I'm not listening to that because I'm going to play. And so at that point, she took me to a sports medicine doctor. Um, they took a, a cast of my leg, and I got a Lennox Hill brace put on. It was the old brace that Joe Namath used to wear. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I kind of took pride in that, like I'm wearing Joe Namath's brace. <laughs> and I started wearing that uh, right at the beginning, kind of my sophomore year in high school. And that's when the knee brace appeared for the first time in games was uh, when I was a JV player at Choya. It's, it's weird. You look back at history of basketball players and there are almost, you know, three famous knee injuries. There's Danny Manning's, you know, the injuries that he yep. that he suffered. Then you've got Ed O'Bannon because of his recovery. And, and, and people talked about yours, but it was almost like yours was the mysterious injury because it happened prior to college and people were still questioning your your knee and we'll get into some of that in a, in a little bit but as your career went on which is just kind of wild it's it's wild that you uh, almost chose to you know by force of will overcome an ACL injury at that time which is just insane to to think about so you get to Arizona as a freshman and your freshman year you average over 15 points a game five boards two assists you're really making an impact the one thing I think about when I look back at your career is that you somewhat, I think, revolutionized the wing position where all of a sudden for the first time you had a guy at your size, 6'8", who could handle the ball like you described. You could shoot it. Uh, you could pass. You could do a lot of different things. How much when you first got on campus and you're playing now against guys on your on your college team, when you first started, how much did you realize that your skill set was different than than even on the college level what they were sort of used to? Uh, I, you know, that's a good question, actually. Um, I don't know when I realized that, to be honest with you, because, uh, for me, my freshman year practice was so, so hard. It was brutally hard every single day. And I was just trying to keep my head above water. Um, you know, I was competing against David Haskins, who was a senior at the time. Uh, you know, he knew the system a lot better than I did. Uh, he knew what coach expected. And so I felt like I had a long ways to go. Um, but I had played with the guys before in a few pickup games and, you know, also during preseason conditioning, we played uh, a lot of pickup games together. So I, you know, I was getting more accustomed to the speed and the talent level. And I, you know, I kind of felt that, you know, I could make a contribution and, and, you know, I was getting better and better, uh, every single day. And so I, you know, I don't know exactly when I realized probably, obviously somewhere along my, in my freshman year, uh, because mm-hmm. I got to, you know, the biggest thing, you know, Luke trusted me with the basketball. And I, I even got to say, going back to my senior year in high school, uh, coach Carly, Mel Carly at Troya was, you know, hugely instrumental in my development as a player because, you know, he took me out of the low block and the low post area and allowed me to bring the ball up the court or get the ball up the glass and and bring it up and go coast to coast, you know, things of that nature. And so, you know, I felt like I could do it. And, and when Coach Olsen, there were a few, you know, signature moments. I remember the UCLA game where uh, we knew that Steve was going to be pressured in the backcourt and same with McMillan. And so Coach Olsen wanted me to come back and, you know, break the press with my ball handling. And so, you know, I was able to – I remember the one play that, uh, you know, I remember vividly that year was when I was able to – bring the ball up and, and Reggie was guarding me and I was able to beat him down the court. And a lot of those people, a lot of the players didn't expect 
that I had those kind of ball handling abilities <laughs> and I was able to go right down the lane for a dunk, you know, bringing it all the way from the backcourt. And, and for me, when I was able to do things like that, you know, I realized that, uh, uh, you know, the ball handling ability definitely was a, an asset for my game. It was definitely a, a big strong suit. Yeah, you look at the the players that that came along after you played, and it's you know Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, LeBron, these these wing players with quick first steps who can handle the basketball, shoot from outside. Again, it, yeah. it, it's so reminiscent of what what you brought to the table, and I, I don't think those guys are getting that freedom uh, to play the game that way or developing those skill sets if, if you hadn't hadn't come before them. Just strictly as an impact at, at Arizona, you get there, and the guys I've talked to at Arizona say everything changed for the program when, when Sean Elliott got there. And obviously, it wasn't just you. Steve Kerr's there, guys like Tom Tolbert, a bunch of other talented, talented players, you know, Sean Rooks, Matt Mulebach, all of them. But as you start to go through, when did you notice a change in what the Arizona program could become? Uh you know, I, I noticed the change even before I got there. And, and that's why I ended up going there, because I, I saw what Coach did in such a short period of time. Uh, I, I, I was there, you know, obviously growing up in Tucson my whole life. You know, I remember a little bit from when I was in elementary school and junior high school, the, the Wildcats, when they had a good basketball team with, uh, you know, Bob Elliott and Eric Money and, you know, uh, some of the old-time guys. But coming up through high school, my first couple of years, uh, the team wasn't as good. As a matter of fact, one of the stories I tell, I went to an, an Oregon U of A game and I was, I had uh, seats in the, in the, basically in the nosebleed section. And by the end of the game, I was on the second row. I'd worked my way all the way down <laughs> because there was no one at the game. It was empty. And, and it's, and it's hard for people to believe that now because it's hard to get a ticket. And get in there, right. but there was there was no one at the game, Adam. I mean, it was a couple hundred people. Team was one in seventeen in, in conference that year, and uh, my junior year, here comes Coach Olson, and the first thing he says is, "Oh, you better get your ticket now." And people are like, "Okay, yeah, whatever, uh, whatever you say, Coach." And and by the end of that year, it was one of the toughest tickets to get in town, and you could see, you know, how he had completely. Uh, changed the program and turned everything around. There was a lot of excitement. Uh, the players were fun to watch. And they were obviously well coached. And so you could see that the program, uh, you know, had a lot of potential. And so even before I got there, I knew what we were capable of. But when I, when I got there, you know, when we played in the Great Alaska Shootout my first year, you know, we had a fairly good showing. Uh, you know, we made the NCAA tournament. And even though we lost to Auburn, you could see that, you know, we had all the ingredients uh, to really – push your program to the next level. So for you personally, at that moment when you were playing in the Great Alaska Shootout, that you realized that there's something special here being built? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I just figured that we're, it was going to be a natural progression every year. And then, you know, during the summer of that, uh, my freshman year, uh, going into my sophomore season, I was on the, the World Games team, and that's when, you know, we kind of had a blessing happen to us, and that was Steve Kerr uh, blowing his ACL out. And it, it was unfortunate for him at the time, but, you know, ultimately, Adam, I think that was a huge blessing uh, for our program. And why is that? Oh, because uh, Steve was a year ahead of me, and had he come back, you know, my sophomore year, I, I wasn't ready 
you know, as a player, and I wasn't good enough. I don't think that team was good enough maybe to make it to the Final Four, so we struggled that year. It, you know, it taught us a lot, and it taught us that, um, you know, what Steve's leadership really brought to the table uh, when he wasn't playing my sophomore year. So when he came back, you know, a lot of players had time to develop. Uh, he came back and he was healthy. Uh, um, he was better, a lot better than what he was uh, as a junior uh, because he had that extra year to kind of sit out and kind of observe. He was a much smarter player. And when he came back, uh, you know, I was a better player in junior year, and he was a better player. And, and we just, you know, everybody came together and gelled. And, and had we not had him, if he'd stayed healthy, and, you know, I think as a sophomore, our year would have been good, but it wouldn't have been, you know, maybe Final Four material. And then we would have lost him my junior year, and that would have been even more difficult. So I think the fact that he sat out that year and he came back uh, really helped the growth of our team overall. 1987-88, your your junior year, you guys obviously have a, a special, special program that's that's talked about a ton, not just in Tucson, but but nationally for years to come. That year in the Great Alaska Shootout, you guys beat, I think, Duquesne and then Michigan, and everyone's talking about your matchup with Syracuse. And all of a sudden, something happens where you almost uncharacteristically Talk about Syracuse's front line and how Arizona's front line is better. Can you tell me about uh-huh. what happened with that situation? Uh, vaguely, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just uh, was, you know, making an honest assessment, and I didn't think that anybody would really, you know, take it and run with it. But uh, you know, I really had a lot of faith in our guys. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, uh, and I had a lot of faith in uh, Tolbert. Um, Anthony Cook was just a tremendous power forward that, uh, you know, a lot of people hadn't heard of. It because, again, uh, it, you know, a lot of people back east, when they watch their their games, when it comes uh, for the late games, they turn off the TV because it's too late. And so you had a lot of big-name guys on Syracuse that were fantastic players, but I liked the guys on our team. Uh, Tolbert and Anthony Cook were NBA players. They played in the NBA. They were just as good and they were as talented as anybody that Syracuse had at the time, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I just thought the three of us, you know, along with Judd Bushler coming off the bench and, uh, you know, some of the other guys we had, you know, were just as deep and just as talented. How much did that moment sort of impact just how your teammates looked at you in terms of the confidence that you had for them? I don't, I don't know how those guys looked at me as the teammates. They probably looked at me like, hey, shut your mouth. You don't want to blame, you know, the other team. Uh, you know, because I, th- I believe that coach said something to me about it, you know, where you got to, you know, kind of pay respect to the other team. And you don't want to come off like you're dogging them. You know, so maybe gave them a little fuel, Syracuse a little fuel, but it didn't matter anyways because we ended up beating them by 11 in that game. And, you know, we had really dissected Michigan – uh, the game before that, and they had a team, a chock full of McDonald's All-Americans and All-Americans. Uh, and so, you know, after we beat them, I kind of got my assessment that, you know, hey, you know, we're we're as good as anybody, and, you know, we're definitely as, as talented as Syracuse. So uh, we the good news is that we went out there and we backed it up. So that year was a lot about fighting for respect nationally for you, Sean? You know, not at the beginning. It wasn't, it wasn't really. We just, we just wanted to play, and and have a good time. It was a team that loved playing together, and we had a ball playing together. It was like a family. And so, 
you know, when we started to get better and we beat uh, we beat Syracuse, we beat Michigan in the Great Alaska Shootout. Uh, you know, we we started you know getting a little, a little confident and we had a lot of pride and and we vaulted from being unranked to I believe third in the country. Then we went and we beat number two Iowa at Iowa. We became number one, and that was a source of pride for us. And we wanted to you know continue to stay there and continue to, you know, break through barriers for the school. How crazy was it getting on campus at that point? You know, I, I don't think it's as crazy as what it would get to be nowadays. Uh, but it was, I think a lot of students were kind of, you know, shocked. And a lot of people around the, the community were shocked <laughs> at what we were accomplishing early on. As a matter of fact, you know, Billy Packer uh, said years later that we had the best, that team at Arizona had the best, November and December in the history of college basketball because we went unranked to number one and we had number we held the number one spot for a long long time so uh, you know you just don't see that nowadays you'd never see a team nowadays go from being unranked to start the season to become number one out of nowhere and beat the teams that we beat uh, so you know I think a lot of people were you know it was hard for them to believe uh, you know what we were accomplishing so early how much did your life change at that point in terms of the attention you started to get as a national figure? Not very much. You know, not very much <laughs> at all, to be honest with you, you know, because there wasn't the hype machine like it is nowadays. And, uh, you know, there's, there, weren't all the, there wasn't all the social media and all these outlets for people to constantly get a look at you. So, you know, there were a few things written, and there were, there were still, you know, people around the country that had their doubts, you know, as to how good we were or, or how good a player I was. I mean, I, I still remember my senior year when uh, Villanova came to town and their head coach at the time said, well, we wanted to see our star player against him because we thought our guy was better. And then he said, but then we got to look at him in person, you know. And, and so, you know, it's just it was, that's, that's how it was back then. You know, it, it was hard for – you know, you need to catch everybody's games. And, and and so I still think at that time, even though we were number one, we kind of still flew under the radar. I mean, even when you go back to the NCAA tournament, we'd beaten Cornell that first game at, at Pauley Pavilion. We beat them by 40. And then yeah. we, we, were on the, we were on the bus going to play Seton Hall, and we had the radio on. We were listening to – couple broadcasts and Britt Musburger was on and he, and he said Seton Hall was his dark horse uh, because they I think they had finished second in the Big East tournament and they're, they're playing well and he picked them to upset us and so you know we all heard that and we went out and we beat Seton Hall by 29 and, you know it was still it was still hard for people to believe that this school in the Pac-10 way out west was as good as all these teams in the ACC and the Big East even though we had been number one and we put together a terrific body of work throughout the season. The Seton Hall team, by the way, that was good enough to just give people context, good enough that they end up going to the NCAA finals the, the following year. I mean, that's how talented you guys yeah. were that year and rolling. Yeah. So you go through this you go through this crazy run where you blow out Cornell, you blow out Seton Hall, then you blow out Iowa, and you face North Carolina, the mythical almost, you know, the legendary yeah. UNC under Dean Smith. What yeah. do you remember about that day? Um, you know, I remember getting on the court, and uh, when we started the game with them, they were aggressive and they were talking a lot at us. Uh, their team, 
which surprised me, you know, because most of the other teams we had played, they weren't talking, they didn't say anything, they just kind of kept their mouth shut, and, and you know, it seemed like every player on their team was talking to us, just talking smack uh, to start off the ball game, which is, I don't know if they were trying to play mind games or getting in our head. You know, they were a physical team. They got after us on the defensive end, but we just continued to wear them down. And then Tolbert had a couple of circus shots there in the second half, some three-point plays that really broke their back. And we ended up pulling away late and winning that game and, and winning it convincingly. And and I tell people, you know, when I go do speaking engagements, I said, you know, one of the, the things that I remember most about that, that time, Adam, is when we got into the locker room after the game, I was having, like, these chest pains. You know, it just felt super tight in my chest. I had a couple of doctors. We had like a team doctor or a couple of physicians there. And they came up and looked at me really quickly. But it wasn't anything like serious. It was just I was so excited. You know, it was just like a, a feeling that you can't um, you can't describe. You know, when you do it as a team, you know, we, we accomplished something that had never been done before. And we had proven ourselves once again. And it was it was just a phenomenal feeling. You know, when you have that group of guys, because we're like a family. And it was one of the rare situations I've been in in, in you know, all my years around the game where it was all for one and one for all, literally. It was everybody was pulling for each other, and it was a true definition of a team. It was, it was more, more than a team. It was a family. Where do you think that comes from? I think that came from, you know, mostly from a coach and the surroundings. And I think they, they just did a, 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 a great job of pulling in players who had, you know, good character and good personalities and, and guys that weren't, didn't have these petty jealousies and, you know, no one hated each other. No one was mad at each other. You know, we were, you know, it was, it was just a different kind of thing. We didn't let anything really come into the locker room. We were just concerned about uh, winning and playing well together and playing for each other. And that, it's easier said than done. It just doesn't happen very often. Like I said, it's still one of the more unique, if not the most unique situation I've ever been in. At this point, how much are you thinking that you're going to win the national championship? Oh, man. We we, we were watching Oklahoma on tape, and uh, we knew we had I mean, we just, you know, we were actually kind of looking around at each other like, we're going to destroy these guys. And we just – found ourselves in a situation where the game, when I actually got a chance to watch the game maybe eight months, a year ago or so, it was it was on TV or I caught it somewhere. And, and uh, you know, I just went looking back on it now, you know, the, the speed of the game, and they were so up-tempo uh, that it kind of took us off guard. They pressed us the entire game, and it kind of wore, wore us down a little bit. And you know, we, you can't really account for that when you watch it on tape. You can see them, and they looked at times way out of control. And we were much more disciplined ball club, but they kind of got the game going, you know, swinging in their favor, the the, the, the pace of the game, and it wore, that wore us down a little bit. We didn't shoot as well. We didn't play as well, and, you know, ultimately we ended up losing. But, God, we were watching them on tape. We knew we were going to win that game. I mean, I just uh-huh. knew it. <laughs> And, and then we all saw that Oklahoma ends up losing to Danny Manning and, and the Miracles uh, in, yeah. in the national championship that year, which must have been even more frustrating to know that you had a team that was much better than, than even Kansas's team, for sure. So um, yeah. after you finish that season, you're now a guy who's 
an All-American. You've reached the Final Four. You've taken Arizona to its highest points. You know, you're on the best Arizona team of all time and all these things. You're in the perfect situation. Why not then leave school and go to the NBA? Oh, well, I thought about it for sure. Um, I think the turning point for me is Coach Olsen and I got invited to the Wooden Awards that year. I was one of the finalists. And uh, after the, the ceremony, they had tickets for all of us if we wanted to to go watch the Lakers play that night. And it was the Lakers and the Sonics. And I don't know how many people uh, took them up on their offer. I know Coach and I did. And Coach and I, we were kind of uh, sitting farther back in the stands. Uh, we, we weren't very close to the game. And, and as the game progressed, uh, somehow or other, we got down to uh, some seating that was much closer to the floor. I believe an usher or somebody came up and recognized us and they moved us up to some better seats. And I'll never forget it. Um, those guys were absolutely killing each other on the court. Uh, and, you know, the Lakers are supposed to be kind of a finesse team, showtime. They weren't even known as being one of the more physical teams in the league. And they were literally hammering each other out there on the court. The game was so incredibly physical. When I looked at it, I, I knew right then that there was no way I was ready for that. I mean, they were absolutely beating each other to death out there. Elbows were flying. Uh, they were setting super hard screens. I mean, it was serious. And at that point, I knew that I needed to come back for at least another year. Uh, you know, I would have taken one more year if I could have. Uh, after watching that game, I was definitely – I knew that I wasn't physically ready to play in the NBA. So there's no chance, though, that uh, Lute Olsen slipped that usher some money so you guys could be closer to the floor. And... <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Coach was so squeaky clean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, that is, that's funny. So, so you come back for your senior year and that's almost, you know, the coronation, maybe not for team success, but you win all the national player of the year awards and you guys are phenomenal. You, you play that game against Duke, um, nationally televised game in, at the Meadowlands and you, and you beat Duke and, you know, it's you and Danny Ferry and uh, you come out victorious at the end of the game. How much of it was personal for you going one-on-one -on -one against a uh, – obviously, it's a team game, but going, you know, going head-to-head -head against a, another guy that was considered a top draft pick and one of the best players in the country? Um, I think all players kind of take those matchups personally, and you want to, you know, outplay the next guy, even though we kind of really didn't play the same position. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they kind of had they, – they regarded me with a lot of smalls, uh, with little guys and, yeah. that were quick, and they were trying to uh, give help as soon as possible. So they, it wasn't really a one-on-one -on -one showdown, but I definitely wanted to beat uh, Danny in the Meadowlands because that's, you know, it's more a home game for them uh, than it is for us. And and also they, you know, Christian Leitner was a freshman as well, and so uh, you know they were getting a lot of hype and deservedly so. But I, you know, I played against Danny. Uh, back in high school at the five-star basketball camp. And so, you know, I played against him several times. And then, of course, my junior year, so it was nothing new uh, to see him on the court. But definitely, definitely wanted to beat him. And, uh, you know, I just felt good making that, making a three down the stretch to help give us uh, some breathing room or 
or I think it was for the lead. Uh, it was late, and so, you know, I was just thrilled to be able to come through for my, my team in that situation. Ended up winning that game on a national level. Yeah, huge three, I remember, from the, the top of the key there. Just yeah. an awesome, awesome moment. So you end up that year going to the NCAA tournament again as a one seed out west um, and get through the first two rounds with ease, and then you face UNLV. What are your memories from, from that UNLV game? Oh, man, you know, we had beaten them earlier in the season at McHale. And we had kind of run away from them late in the ball game, and I figured that you know we had a good chance of beating them again. And we just uh, we didn't play as well again. And you know I kind of felt that they did a, a better job of keeping the ball out of my hands um, because I you know in that situation you know as a senior I definitely wanted to have the ball in my hands a majority of the time. You know I wanted to have it in my hands basically all the time. And so. Uh, they did a good job getting the ball out of my hands and forcing the other players to make plays. And, you know, the thing I remember maybe most about that game is uh, the last shot by Anderson Hunt. Uh, you know, Kenny was trying to draw a charge there, and he made a shot uh, in the corner. And then uh, not getting the ball for the last shot of the game, just, you know, was surrounded by guys coming up the court and didn't get a chance to, you know, make one more shot at it or get one more look at it. Can you try to explain what that feeling is like to be in the NCAA tournament? You guys, again, must have been thinking that you're going to be playing for a national championship, and then just like that, your career is over. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was tough, actually. Um, it was hard to swallow, you know, maybe for the first, you know, hour after the game. Uh, you know, we're on our way back to the hotel, and it, it was kind of sinking in. And you know, it was, it was hard for everybody. It was it was tough for everybody. Um, um, but you know, it's, it's the reality that only one team's happy at the at the end of the year, and it's tough. Even if you have the best team, doesn't mean you're always going to win. And we'd learned that lesson the year before. I just wish, at that point, that we could have taken a little bit farther because we saw Seton Hall playing. They would have been our next opponent in the, in the next round and and you know we felt like after we beaten them last year that we could definitely beat them to go to the final four so maybe we're looking ahead a little bit and uh you know we figured we were going to get there for sure and it just didn't materialize for us it's kind of crazy to think that you know a, a couple bounces the other way and you guys could have been two-time national champions you know back to back during yeah. during the end of yeah, your yeah. career i mean yeah, I mean, yeah, you're not always the best team wins. You know, teams got to get a little bit lucky and, you know, have get a couple breaks and, uh, you know, things just didn't happen for us. It really felt that we were better than that Vegas team from top to bottom. I knew we were better than Seton Hall. And they ended up going to the, the finals against uh, Michigan, and we would beaten Michigan the year before uh, <laughs> as well in, in the Great Alaska shootout. So, you know, all the teams basically that were left, we had beaten them at one time or another convincingly. Yeah, I mean, the history is, is a weird thing. I mean, people look back at that Duke team as being so special. Um, you know, that Duke team later that won back-to-back titles. And, yeah. uh, you know, the team that you guys had during that stretch and the talent that you had, and you talked about Cook and, and uh, Sean Rooks. And, I mean, it's just it, – it's funny how the NCAA tournament can change sort of the perception of how things were, you know, reality. Yeah, well, I tell you, I tell you what, if we, if we had had Brian Williams, you know, he, mm-hmm. he later became Bison Daly. You know, mm-hmm. he 
he transferred over when I was a senior, but he was ineligible. And he used to dominate our practices. I mean, he was a dominant force. And had we had him by senior year, we would have lost the game. We would not have lost the game. We we would have we would have run roughshod over everybody. I, I just don't see anybody at that point. I know we used to talk about it all the time. You know, after practices, we'd had him eligible. There's no one would have beaten us that year. We would have. I, I, we would have run the gamut. We would have run the the table because we were good. But man, to add him, there was no big man in the country at that time that was as good as he was. Yeah, the, the Maryland transfer from you guys, and it, it's wild too. Another name that people I don't think appreciate. Just, I, I would say the same thing about about Cook to a certain extent. Watching old tapes, I don't think people appreciate how good those guys were that you were playing with. Oh yeah, Anthony Cook. You know, he played overseas and he came back and uh, played for Denver and Milwaukee. You know, he had played four years in the league and could have played longer had he not uh, hurt his his knee uh, playing for Denver. But he was a phenomenal shot blocker. He got off the ground as fast as anybody uh, that I've ever seen blocking shots. And he was a, a great rebounder as well. So, you know, we were good defensively. Uh, offensively, he, his game was coming around. And so, man, I always talk about that. If I had had Brian Williams as a senior, boy, it would have been liked out. <laughs> uh, on the positive side, NBA drafts now coming up for you during that stretch in your career. On NBA Draft Day, take me through that day, your memories. Uh, you know, just waiting around a long time in the hotel room was the biggest thing. And, you know, I didn't have any idea where I was going to go. I, I had talked to Sacramento on the phone. I uh, didn't have a good feeling about that. So I didn't think I was going to go there. Uh, the Clippers was a whole fiasco. That was a whole debacle. That's a whole another crazy story. And then I hadn't spoken to San Antonio not to one person in the organization and I had gone out to Miami for a visit and Miami told me uh, straight that if I was available at four, they were going to pick me at four. And so I, I just figured, you know, going into it that I was going to, at the very least, I was going to go number four to Miami and I was looking forward to going there. So Purvis Ellison ends up going first to the Kings and then yeah. Danny Ferry, again, goes to the Clippers. And I read an article today as I was doing research for this, Sean, that at the time the Clippers, I mean, you, you sort of alluded to it, were scared, basically, of your knee injury, of all things. Um, how much yeah. did you catch with that? Huh. That's, a, that's a whole other story. I mean, the Clippers at that time, obviously, you know, they, they were the Clippers. So, you know, Danny yeah. Ferry said, I'm not, you know, Danny Ferry said, I'm not playing for you. You know, I went to go visit them. Uh, no one was there to pick me up at the airport. Uh, I was stranded at the airport for a couple hours. I had to call my agent and say, hey, no one's here to pick me up. I'm a college kid. I don't have any money in my pocket. Uh, my agent has to call the hotel, one of the airport hotels, get me set up, um, puts his credit card on file so I can get something to eat. And then the Clippers called me in the hotel room. They say, hey, we're going to come and pick you up and work you out. And I called my agent. He said, hey, they're not allowed to work you out. We already came to an agreement with them. Uh, he said they just want to, uh, you know, go and interview you basically and then pro probably get an X-ray and MRI of your knee. So they take an MRI of my, of my knee, Adam, and they send out an, an erroneous report to every team in the NBA. 
So they sent out a report that said that they could see that my ACL was torn, uh, that, uh, you know, such a, this was bad, this was bad, this was bad, basically. So happened that my agent had a copy of it, got a copy of the MRI, and there was a big radiology conference going on in Boston at the time. My agent, his name was Bob Wolf. And he had Larry Bird, he had Chief, he had a couple of big-name players, and he was, at the, the time, he was the man. Okay, so Bob Wolf take, uh, goes down to the radiology conference that's going on in Boston. There's a guy lecturing. He's the number one reader of MRIs in the country. Bob approaches him after his lecture. He asks him to come to his office. The guy, doctor comes to his office, and literally... Bob told me he read my MRIs on the window of Bob's office, put them up on the window, looked at the Clipper report and said, you cannot see what they're saying here with these slides. Wow. So he had to write, yeah, so he had to write his own report and we had to send it to every team in the league. So wow. I, the Clippers, you know, that whole situation was a complete fiasco the fact that they were putting out an erroneous report on my knee heading into the draft. And so you would think that they did that because they thought I was going number one and they wanted to make sure I fell at number two. But but I was available at number two and they took Danny Ferry, who said he wasn't going to play for him anyways. And never, and, and never did. He went to Europe to play for him. So that just show, shows you how dysfunctional they were at the time. I, I, I'm just stunned. I'm stunned. I've heard a lot of NBA oh, yeah. stories, and, and that's yeah, that the most Clipper story I've ever heard. Yeah, that oh. that shows you. I mean, that that was absolutely insane. At one time, you know, my agent wanted to sue them, but that, that was just you know unbelievable that at that time that's what they did. Wow. Well, listen. Obviously, things worked out for the best in a in a huge way for you. Because you end up on the Spurs now. Originally, when you get there, Larry Brown is is coaching the Spurs. Tell me about that introduction to to the NBA. Well, that was brutal. That, that was tough. Um, you know, Larry. I went from having a neon green light with Lute Olson, you know, where I could bring the ball up if I wanted to shoot it, you know, three or four times in a row. You know, he wouldn't say a whole lot to me. And I went from that situation to not being able to take a 10 or a 15 footer if I was wide open. And, and that was a hard adjustment. And, you know, Larry and I really butted heads that first year. And about midway through that first year, I had an altercation with him in, in Golden State. And that's when he came to me later on and we had a better understanding. And he told me that he got bad coaching advice on me, that somebody told him the way to coach me was to yell at me. And that, you know, Luke would yell – but it wasn't incessant. You know, it was, if I did something wrong, well then coach would, you know, jump on me and he would correct me. But, you know, near my senior year, you know, I knew the system. I wasn't making a lot of mistakes. You know, coach was rarely on me, rarely, if ever. And I went from that situation to a guy who yelled at me, you know, David Robinson got beat by somebody, you know, I was what, what the teammates, my teammates called the whipping boy. So I would get, you know, I would get stuff no matter if it was my fault or not. And and so that was a tough situation. But I, but the crazy thing is, about halfway through the season when we resolved it, 
I loved playing for Larry. And then when he left a couple of years later, he left mid-season in, during my third year. I was heartbroken as a player, and I was one of the only guys in the locker room that was just, you know, I was beside myself because I understood that he was a great coach. He was always coaching me. We'd come to a much better, much, much better understanding of each other. And, you know, I thought he was a, a tremendous coach. We just got off to a rough start. Well, that's really interesting. And it's remarkable, too, that a guy that even at the time was as experienced as Larry Brown was would just go into it on the words of, of someone else, which weren't even true. Yeah, I don't think, that, it, well, I, you know, it, it was a different time, and I don't think he really talked to Coach O um, very often. There was, you know, I, I don't think there was that open line of communication where there is now where I know that NBA coaches will call college coaches and say, hey, what's the story with this guy? How would you motivate him? That kind of thing. I know that those conversations weren't going on between uh, Larry and Luke. And so I don't know where Larry got his information from, but that's what he told me. That's really that's really fascinating. So you you came in as a rookie with David Robinson because obviously he had to fulfill his his naval commitment. Uh, so you guys start at at the same time, even though you were going through your struggles. How much was it apparent that there was real potential here in San Antonio? After my rookie year, you know, after my rookie year, we lost in the second round to Portland in the seven game series. And we had them in game seven. We were up by seven points with the ball with 2.45 to play. And we mismanaged the last two minutes and 45 seconds of the game and lost in overtime in game seven. And that Portland team ended up going to the finals. And, and so, you know, we felt like we could have beaten them with a, with a young ball club. And we kind of figured that, you know, next year we're going to be in a better position uh, than we were the previous year, and we had a chance to go to the NBA Finals. It, it obviously didn't happen for us for a long time because of various re- reasons, but at that point, we knew that there was potential for some great things. You spoke about after a couple of years, you lose your coach, Larry Brown, Bob Ass comes in midseason. Then the 92-93 yeah. year, can you just explain what happened with the, the coaching scenario? Tark's Starts the year, a guy obviously you knew from your college days, Jerry Tarkanian, starts the yeah. season, then then Rex Hughes is there for a stretch, then John Lucas finally takes over. What, can you, yeah. what was that season like for you? Uh, it was up and down. It was, uh, it was a crazy season uh, because we start off 10 and 11, and, uh, you know, Tark was still trying to make, you know, kind of an adjustment. Uh, to the league, and, and that's when Red McCombs let him go, 21 games into it. Kind of figured that we should have been better uh, than we were, even though we added a lot of new a lot of new pieces, uh, a lot of guys that were, you know, just unfamiliar with each other. And, uh, you know, he brings in John Lucas. I think uh, Rex Hughes coached one game mm-hmm. uh, the night that, uh, the night that uh, Tark was fired, and, and at the end of that game he brought in, John Lucas and said, Hey, you know, Lucas is your new coach. And so that was, uh, that was different for us, you know, obviously, but we're kind of used to, uh, chaos in, in, in San Antonio after you know, Larry had left the year before. And then Bob Bass came in, you know, the general manager comes down and coaches the team. Uh, that was a little chaotic. And so, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of used to it and we were like, well, ho hum. 
you know, here, here we go again. Sean, do you think Tark could have worked as an NBA coach? Yeah, I think he could have because the the best thing about Tark, honestly, was he was he was a great motivator. He was he was great at diffusing uh, situations that you know a lot of people could draw distractions from. We, we were playing a, a preseason game, I believe, it was in Albany, New York. A few guys on our team who were veterans uh, and, and were in the know. One guy in particular who knew a lot of the Knicks players knew that the Knicks were staying at, it was like a, the best hotel in that area. And we were playing, we were basically staying in a dump. You know, we were staying in a, a pretty much a, 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 a motel. And, and so we had a few of the veterans that were complaining on the team about how the Knicks were staying and how we were staying. And, and Tark sat us all down before practice and he said, Hey, you know, when it's all said and done, they got to go back to New York and the weather's crappy there. And he goes, we get to go back to San Antonio. And he diffused the whole situation. It was it was just masterful how he did it. And when we all broke from that huddle, guys were feeling really good about themselves. And you know, that little distraction was thrown right out the window. No one cared anymore where we were staying. You know, he, he brought us together in that moment. And you could see how, you know, he was a great motivator and how he got guys to come together. That's That's, that's pretty cool. That's that's pretty cool because we don't get to hear about the the uh, NBA Tark other than you know yeah. Sweepy Lloyd Daniels uh, stories. Yeah. Uh, um, so then Sean, you end up going to to Detroit. Uh, people don't realize this. I don't think think about this that you were part of the deal that sent Rodman from the Pistons to the Spurs. You spend a year in Detroit and then come back to San Antonio after after a year. What were your feelings about that? Um, I was just happy to get you know out of Detroit number one to be honest with you, um, and and you know I had options to to go to Seattle, Denver, Phoenix, uh, Utah at that time, and San Antonio. And the thing that swayed me toward San Antonio was Pop, because Pop had come back and he was now the general manager. And my first three years in the league, Pop was an assistant coach in San Antonio, and we had. Uh, really kind of formed a bond because in my first year there, Pop and I went on a caravan together in the summer before the season even started trying to uh, drum up uh, new fans. And so we, the Spurs put us on a little hotel shuttle bus and we were going all these small towns in South Texas, Uvalde and Victoria and Del Rio and going down to Corpus. Uh, We were doing clinics in the parking lots of these HEBs with the coyote. And so, you know, Pop and I were two just kind of wet behind the ear guys. And before the season even started, we kind of formed this bond and this friendship uh, from that caravan. And so, when he came back as general manager, all he had to say is, "Hey, you know, we're, you know, we want you to come back." And it was one of the the owners, is what it was. It was Joe McDermott told Pop, you know, to trade back for me. And so that was Pop said that was his mandate. And so he, you know. He said that's what they wanted to do. They they uh, um, they came to me and and uh, I said you know absolutely I'd love to come back because you know already going to Detroit I was excited about going to Detroit when I first got traded there I said well I'm going to make the most of it it didn't really work out and the way the way that it ended with me there made me think that hey I didn't want to try someplace else new I wanted to go back to where I was familiar. I knew that I knew most of the guys on the team 
Uh, I knew the, the, the teammates, you know, pretty well. I knew the situation there, and Pop, you know, came in saying that, hey, you know, things were going to be a little bit different than they were the time before. And so, you know, I just had a lot of trust in him. Well, you were at in Detroit. It was Isaiah Thomas's last year. You got a chance to play with Joe Dumars, but obviously, writing's on the wall that that team was was headed downhill, especially from from their uh-huh. glory years. But Sean, you bring up the the Greg Popovich thing. We all see Pop as the guy that gives you know the funny in game interviews. Uh-huh. He's, I think hysterical with the press, and I also consider Greg Popovich to be the best NBA coach who's ever lived. I know there's arguments to that. People will say Phil Jackson or Red Auerbach. But I, I really think that Greg Popovich just has a way of getting his teams to play on a special level and play with an unselfishness. And it doesn't matter who he plugs in there. He, he finds a way to get it done. You obviously knew him from the very yeah. beginning of that, that career to the point that he is now. What is it that we don't know and don't see about Greg Popovich? Uh, the biggest thing is his softer side. Uh, I think that that's the side that, you know, gets players a lot uh, because everybody sees him, you know, chewing guys out or getting after people or or putting pressure on the press, you know, just making those guys squirm a little bit. And so I think everybody sees him as a hard ass, and he could definitely be a hard ass, especially as the game is – when the game starts and when, when the ball goes up and you get between the lines, he's as competitive as anybody else out there. But away from that, um, after the games, you know, he takes all the guys out to dinner. If you want to go to dinner after the game, uh, you know, especially on the road, he loves to have team dinners and, and he loves for the players to go and he likes to pick nice places to kind of expose the players to, you know, different kinds of experiences as opposed to, you know, guys just, you know, going their own way and going to room service after the game. He wants to take them to a fine Italian place or a fine French place. And he wants to walk around the table and say, hey, Timmy, have you tried those escargots? You know, he's kind of foie gras, you know, and he's excited about that. And people see him kind of as a as another father figure. And I think that the players really appreciate that, and that's one part of him that they really love. Historically, another thing that people don't realize, I think, is that everyone wants to talk about the fact that the Spurs got a chance to get Tim Duncan because David Robinson was hurt that, that year before before the Duncan draft. But – what they forget is that you were also hurt that year as well. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, that was the first year of my knee surgery, so I had uh, right knee surgery um, that year, and then the next year, uh, Timmy's first season, I had left knee surgery and missed the second half of the year. So I had exactly the same thing on my right and left done in back-to-back years. So I missed the last 35 games or so. Uh, the first year, and then we were able to get Timmy, and then I missed maybe the last 34 or 5 of the next year, uh, which was his first season in the NBA. So all these people give David Robinson credit for having Tim Duncan <laughs> on the team. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Memorial Day miracle. You're playing the Blazers, Western Conference Finals, and it's game two. You've already won game one in San Antonio. You're playing game two. And the Blazers are winning for most of that game. David yeah. Stoudemire goes to the line and uh, only makes one of, of two free throws. So it's they're up two. And there's 12 seconds left on the clock. 
take yeah, over. You know, a, a lot of Wildcats involved in that game, actually, in that outcome, which I don't know if Wildcat fans know that. You just mentioned it. But Stoudemire missed a free throw. And then when we come out of the huddle, the play was for Steve to get a screen. I'm setting a screen for Steve along the baseline. And he's supposed to run to the corner, catch the ball, and then dump it into David Robinson, the low block. And then David's supposed to make his move and tie the game. So at the beginning of the play, as I go across the, sc- the bottom of the lane to set the screen for Steve, the Blazers step out of bounds across across the sideline and cause a delayed game. So that gives them a chance to look at the play we're running, get a good kind of feel for it. But at the same time, Steve and I had now changed positions along the baseline. So as the ball is handed back to Mario Eli, I look at Steve and I don't want to have to run uh, to the opposite block and then set up again because any way the play is for David, we're supposed to throw it into him. So, Steve and I look at each other, we just say, okay, it's okay that we switch spots because the results are going to be the same. So Steve kind of uh, set the screen for me. I run to the corner, and as I come out to the corner, the pass is being made to me. Stacy Ogman goes for the steal and takes himself out of the play. So he's in kind of the front row, and as I turned around, you know, Adam, all I saw was a basket. And there have been a lot of times in my career where I wanted the ball late and didn't get it, and I was frustrated a lot. But mm-hmm. in this game, you know, and even before the game, I told people that I had a routine where I take a lot of – I had to take 25 threes as we come out in the court, we warm up. You already, you already take threes before when you get there and you do your pregame warm-up. When we come out right before the game to warm up, I had five threes from five spots. Well, I missed two of those threes, two out of 25, and the two that I missed, just basically came in and out. And the one three that I missed during that game also rattled in and out. I mean, it was down the whole time. And the rest of the threes that I shot were just pure. They were just pure. They, 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 I don't even know if they even touched the rim. They just felt so good. And so when I turned around and caught that ball along the baseline, all I saw at that point was the rim. I didn't see anything else. I didn't even see Rasheed Wallace. You know, I shot the ball. I, I let it go. I didn't even think about tiptoeing the line or anything like that. I just turned around and let it fly. And, you know, the one thing I remember about that shot is as I was falling backwards, I was kind of trying to get a view of the shot because Rashid Wallace was then uh, blocking my vision. But as soon as I let it go, I felt like it was good. It, it It's special just to hear you reenact it. So thank you. Thank you for that. And then, and, and, and again, what people forget then on that ensuing possession, Jimmy Jackson drives and you end up blocking the shot that would have been all for naught if, if he scored yeah. on that last possession. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, I kind of made a defensive error because we, we don't want to, one of the things that pop doesn't want is to allow middle, but Jimmy <laughs> Jackson was able to kind of get middle on me, but in order to do that, he's right-handed. He had to put the ball back in his right hand to get that shot up. And so I was able to get a hand on it and get a good hand on it and block it away. And we came away with the, the rebound. So, you know, that was it. And, you know, you know, a lot of people that don't know the history of, of San Antonio and all the disappointments mm-hmm. that we faced during the playoffs, you know, we, we had the best record in the league in 94, 95. 
Uh, we lost to the Houston Rockets in the Western Conference Finals. We had beaten them five out of six times that year during the regular season. So we were, we were set to beat them. The next year, we had the best record in the league. We lost in the second round to the Utah Jazz. And so that year, in 99, we had the best record in the league again. We had been outplayed by Portland in game one, managed to win, and then we were down by 18 in that game two. And our fans were saying to themselves, here we go again. They're going to let us down again. Somehow we're jinxed. It's not going to happen for us. And when I made that shot, you know, I think people started to kind of believe that we could do it. And matter of fact, that's what the players said. You know, at that point, they knew that it was our time. It was, you know, no, this year that no one was going to take it away from us. How much do you take pride in, just like at Arizona, I know that you're a selfless guy, but how much do you take pride in the fact that you played a part in helping to build a franchise? Well, it feels good. I mean, it, it, it does. It feels great. And it, and it feels good, especially when you look at the way things have progressed. And, you know, we have a winning culture here, and uh, we've been that way for a long, long time. And so, you know, I, I definitely take a lot of pride in that, in that, you know, I was a part of that and, and building that foundation. And every once in a while, I'll be at dinner with Pop or, or RC will be around, the general manager. And RC, by the way, was an assistant coach as well those first couple of years. Now he's a general manager of the team. So I've known both those guys since 1989 and both of them will say something to me you know, about building the foundation of the team. And, uh, and, you know, that's always a great feeling because you know that you're in on the ground floor. After you were struggling with kidney issues and you needed the, the transplant, can you just tell me about how it came about that your brother ended up being the one who, the one who enabled you to have a yeah. transplant? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, after I figured out I needed a transplant, uh, midway through that 99 season, uh, after the season, you know, I told my family, basically, I needed a kidney transplant, and they all stepped forward, all of them, to be tested. And, you know, my mom, I was, uh, out of the six markers, I matched three with my mom, so she was uh, a match, but I matched five with my brother, Noel. And the doctors felt, because he was also younger, a little healthier that he'd be a, a, a better choice. And so my brother, when I talked to him about it, he was like, he was more than happy to do it. He was eager to do it. And he said he felt like, you know, it was his calling and he was here for a reason to help me out uh, in that regard. And, and uh, you know, God bless him because my brother hates needles. And <laughs> in, 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 in order for you to go through, you know, to be a donor, they had to take so much blood from him and stick him here and there. And he was a trooper boy. He was definitely a trooper. And, uh, you know, the thing about it is when you're, when you're a donor, uh, like the doctor said, you know, we're, we're only making you worse. We're taking something from you. We're not trying to make you better. Uh, we're trying to make the recipient better. And so, you know, it's really a humongous act of courage for so many donors out there, uh, that donate organs, you know, they're, they're really the unsung heroes. Cause when I came back, a lot of people, were telling me as a hero. I said, wait a minute, you, you guys don't understand. It's the donor who's the hero. I was the guy who took something from my brother. He's the one who gave it to me. So uh, it was really an incredible experience for both of us because I got to come back and play. And my brother felt like, you know, he was the reason and he was the reason I was able to come back. Just last question I have for you is, is your retirement? And I'm curious yeah. as to, you know, you finish up this, this wonderful career how did you know that it was time to hang him up? Oh, I think there were lots of things. I mean, my, you know, the biggest thing is that after having my transplant, 
uh, I wasn't able to take a lot of the non-steroidal, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to what they are, like the Motrin, Advil, you know, those kind of things that circulate around that, you know, basically kept a lot of players going. And so at the end of my 12th season, I mean, every single game I felt, you know, if, even if I played a lot or a little, my body felt like it had been just wrecked. And so, you know, all I could do was ice, you know, from time to time take Tylenol, and that just wasn't cutting it for me. And I, I was really tired of getting out of bed every day and feeling like I, I was 90 years old. I mean, my body just felt uh, absolutely horrible. Um, you know, my knees hurt, my back hurt. You know, I had torn a rotator cuff that year. And so, uh, you know, my body was kind of waving the white flag on me. And I think that was the biggest thing. You know, I, I always told myself that I wanted to play 16 years. Like I wanted to get four more in the league and play until I was like 36. But I kind of had to face reality that after my transplant, not being able to take some of those medications and, and, and just relying on ice every day for me wasn't going to cut it. And it was just, it was a tough situation. So I, I kind of listened to my body and that's when I had to hang them up. Well, I just want to let you know, I, I am so grateful that you uh, joined me on this podcast. It's been amazing. I, I thank you so much for being candid and uh, just your openness. Just awesome. And, and your brother sounds like an incredible guy too. So um, oh, he is. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, am, I am sure of it. So you know, congratulations on, on all of your success, not just during your career, which you had tremendous success, you know, helping to build Arizona and then helping to build the Spurs, but also in your, your post-NBA career with the broadcasting and all. It's just been a pleasure talking to you. So thank you very much for, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, all right. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it, man. So a huge thank you once again, Sean Elliott. Remarkable story. Came from a situation early in his high school career with a tragic knee injury by sheer force of will, basically, at the time, overcame that, kept seeing adversity along the way during his career, but he's at Arizona, and he basically puts that program on the national map. Then he goes to the Spurs and the NBA after, again, adversity. The NBA draft stuff is just mind-boggling, but gets to the Spurs and and puts the Spurs in a position to win an NBA championship, which which they do. A remarkable story of courage from Sean Elliott. So congratulations to him once again. You can catch Sean on Twitter at Sean Elliott underscore three two. You can catch me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Naismith Lives. Really appreciate you listening to the podcast. As always, we'll catch you next time.